This is the Utah Epodcopalians, a podcast of the Diocese of Utah designed to reflect on the Episcopal Church in our unique land of Utah. Although if you're listening elsewhere, we'll still accept you. (laughs) But we're going to talk a lot about Utah and what makes the church and our diocese unique. Well, it's Holy Week and we have a lot to do today. We're going to take a week of services, explain them in a half hour, and by the end of this podcast, we're going to know what matins and lauds and tenebrae and all kinds of terms actually mean and why we celebrate them, why we observe them, and what it all means to go through Holy Week. As we say, it is Holy Week and a fitting guest, the Right Reverend Scott B. Hayashi of the Diocese of Utah, the bishop, and I'm Craig Worth of the Diocese. So let's start right out with the first service in Holy Week, and some say that it actually, Holy Week even starts after it, but that would be Palm Sunday. So Palm Sunday is an unusual service in that it starts with um, triumphant um, music, it has palms, and then it goes quickly very dark with the Passion and with other um, parts of that service. What's the meaning of it? How does it start out the week? And what do you um, what do you bring home from it? And you hope that those that go to it bring home from Palm Sunday. Well, let's begin actually with <clears throat> talking about Holy Week, you know, broadly speaking, and, and what we're doing in Holy Week. And also, I think it's important to talk a little bit about and explain just what the word holy itself means, because we use that term uh, all the time. Uh, in, in the church, but even outside of the church, people will use the word holy, and 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 I believe that if you ask most people uh, what that word means, they'd say special in some way or, or something um, something churchy. Uh, and but the word holy actually means set apart. Now special is correct, um, but set apart for a special purpose. So when we talk about Holy Week, then we are saying this is a week that has been set apart uh, for a special purpose. And that special purpose uh, for Holy Week is to walk with Jesus during the last days of his life. And so it begins with the triumphal entry into Jerusalem uh, for Palm Sunday, where Jesus was entering into Jerusalem Uh, and he was riding on the back of a donkey, uh, and people were throwing palm branches in front of him, which signifies the the coming of the Messiah, the the king that will come into Jerusalem to set them free. Uh, And uh, in particular, in this case, uh, the hope, of course, had been that he would come to set them free from their bondage or occupation uh, by the Romans. Uh, Now, Interestingly, uh, if you study this, the the Romans procurator, um, Pilate, was coming into Jerusalem at the same time on the other side of town. So the whole timing of this this event that that we celebrate, um, as far as history is concerned, um, certainly is layered on with all sorts of other meanings, the political manifestation of Rome um, sending this person in, uh, which is a sign of power and authority. And on the other side, a spiritual movement uh, with Jesus coming into 
uh, into the holy city of Jerusalem, the city of peace. So this is uh, what's being sketched out here. So again, it, it uh, we call it the Sunday of Palms because the people threw the palm fronds and palm branches in front of the donkey as Jesus came into um, the city of Jerusalem. So the service begins on that note of triumph because the people are celebrating uh, the entry of Jerusalem, uh, of Jesus, and they are in joyful hope and expectation that this is the one to set them free. Uh, and by that, I mean set them free, literally speaking. Uh, now, we in the church uh, believe that the setting free was uh, a spiritual matter, uh, where set, set people free uh, to stand before God, to be made worthy to stand before God, uh, and not so much in the political sense of being freed from the, uh, from the in this case, the Romans. Um, but be set free spiritually. But nevertheless, to this very day, that, that sense of being liberated uh, is, is a very important um, aspect of, of a person's faith, that they're, they're being set free from the powers of darkness in the world to be something other um, than, than one who simply follows the trends of the day, uh, set free to have a higher view, a divine view, of, of life, set free from the bondage of being enslaved to having to see some people as, as better than others, set free from uh, the, the slavery, the enslavement that comes uh, when uh, we objectify uh, people who are different than us and, and count them as less than human, which is a slavery um, to that for in, in the church, uh, and for people of faith, we see all people as being made in the image of God. And so all people are beloved children of God. So uh, being set free from that. So back to uh, Palm Sunday, that service starts on a note of triumph. Mm -hmm. But then as the service goes forward, uh, what happens is, is well, as we know um, from the story itself, things quickly fell apart. Right. Um, and so we get um, to the story of of Jesus going to the temple and, and uh, the turning of the tables and the cleansing of the temple, so to speak, which really, uh, in the time of Jesus, uh, one asked the question, how much would people really have known what was happening? Right, it's such a big temple. It's, and such, it's, it's, such a it's big, in a corner of it. it yeah. it's, it's a small area of the temple grounds itself. So um, the way I think we view this from a popular notion based upon movies and so forth, in uh, our own imaginations is that what he did there that everybody would have known what was happening when in actual fact probably just a, a small group of people would have known. But what he did was upset um, the merchants, um, business folk who were changing money and selling um, selling doves to be used for sacrifice. And, and so by doing... Um, by doing this, this action, well, there was a fundamental threat to the economics um, of the temple. And of course, when anyone um, steps in and tries to disrupt uh, the world of business um, and upset the way things are done, um, there's usually a price to pay for that. Why and do you think the service um, takes that dark side and doesn't just stay, you know, because we're going to move into Good Friday coming up in about five days from that. Why? Why does it um, start out so triumphant, but 
the service itself. We know the story does, but why does the service, do you think, have to include that, the passion, all the way to the end? It does that because it tells, it's the whole story of the Passion Week. It, it tells that to, to help people move into um, the whole story itself of Jesus and what he is doing. This is, this is his ultimate sacrifice that's making, and we and the church go along with him in this journey. And so it is important for the church to hear that whole thing because um, suffering is quite real in this world. And one of the things that Christianity does, uh, the Judeo-Christian tr tradition does, um, is it understands suffering as being part of this life. And it doesn't try to, to dress it up in any way. It acknowledges that suffering exists. And that, to me, is a very important aspect about the tradition, as opposed to saying either a suffering really isn't real or, or suffering is a result of something um, that, that uh, your ancestors did. Um, but rather, in the Christian tradition in particular, suffering, suffering is seen as something which comes in this life, but also it is through the suffering itself that our redemption, our salvation, it is is received or gained or given to us. Uh, so Jesus' suffering is suffering that has meaning and purpose and sets us free. Uh, and also, that here's an opportunity. Uh, we call this week Holy Week or Passion Week. Now, the word passion itself actually means suffering. It, it, and I think people don't generally understand that. They, they, if you ask a person what does passion, the word passion mean, I think it's all caught up in, you know, being passionate about this or that or something um, of a sensual nature. Um, but rather the word passion itself means suffering. So compassion means to suffer with. So you could say that as we go with Jesus during this week, we are suffering with. As, as he makes his journey, we go with him um, during, this, during this period. Of time, so it's an important aspect because it is through the suffering itself um, that we are made worthy to stand before God. Do you see Palm Sunday as the end of Lent or the beginning of Holy Week? The beginning, I see it as the beginning of Holy Week. Um, that that's what I see, you know, in in this whole movement that we have now. Lent was was uh, characterized by walking with Jesus, Jesus as he was making his way to Jerusalem. And of course, it, it is that season wherein we're asked to reflect upon our own lives and find out those things which might be standing in between ourselves and God. Those things which are stand, and if God is our ground for the our ultimate happiness and joy, then actually the removal of those things um, would lead us to greater joy and greater happiness if God is the ground of all happiness and joy and love. So instead of being penitential in that sense, we could see that as being a process by which we come closer to God, therefore closer to our ground of happiness um, and joy. The subject is Holy Week and all the services of Holy Week, and you are listening to the Utah Epochopalians, a podcast of the Diocese of Utah, and our guest is the Right Reverend Scott B. Hayashi. We've talked about Palm Sunday. Let's move on. That, um, Like many dioceses, we have a chrism mass and a renewal of the ordination vows. What happens at that service, and why is it important that a priest or a deacon who has um, been ordained for life renews those vows? 
Well, that is a good question um, and one that I think um, bears some reflection. Now, in the Diocese of Utah, uh, we do that service on Tuesday of Holy Week. Traditionally, it should be done on Thursday, Monday, Thursday. Uh, now, why do we do it on Tuesday uh, in Holy Week instead of Thursday, which is more the practice of the um, the Christian tradition or those uh, those denominations that follow uh, what we would call more of a liturgical tradition, such as the Roman Catholic Church. The reason we do it on Tuesday in the Diocese of Utah in the Episcopal Church is frankly because on Monday, Thursday, the priests are very busy. Mm -hmm. And so to get them to be able to come to Salt Lake for that service is just difficult. So when George Bates was the Bishop of the Diocese of Utah, uh, George moved that service to Tuesday because he received any number of complaints from the clergy saying they couldn't make it to that service. Now, <clears throat> why why Monday Thursday? The, the answer to that question is because Monday Thursday is the day uh, during Holy Week, and as we tell the story of the Passion of Jesus, Monday Thursday was the day when Jesus gathered with his disciples in, in the upper room, and he told them what was going to happen and. He instituted what we would later be um, come known, of course, as communion or the great thanksgiving, the Holy Eucharist. And it is also the day which Jesus gave himself over to the disciples um, and telling them there is a new commandment or mandatum, hence Monday Thursday, that I have for you that you should love one another. So it makes sense then to have the renewal of vows on Monday Thursday in the same way uh, because then the clergy gather with um, the bishop just as Jesus gathered with the disciples and they come together for that service and traditionally the holy oils <coughs> are blessed at that service the holy oils used for baptism and prayers for healing so we also call this the chrism mass because the holy oil the chrism for the chrismation um, is 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 done at that service and then the priest uh, take that holy oil back to their congregations and use them uh, throughout the year for baptism, baptisms and anointing. So that is the the reason for doing um, the renewal vows during Holy Week because it is it is the same movement that Jesus had with um, his disciples on that that most important when day. When you renew your vows, which you do too, yes. Um, is there a way to sum up how that makes you feel each time that you say those vows that you have said for years and years and years from that first time you were ordained a deacon? It's a rededication. It's, it's a renewal of, of myself um, to be faithful to the um, calling that I have as the bishop. Um, the clergy of the diocese uh, in, in so many ways really are the... the body of people that the bishop has as his uh, or her um, congregation, so to speak. The bishop is the pastor to the pastors. Um, and as such, it is important uh, to rededicate myself and to confess to the clergy of the diocese that in, in ways I have failed as their bishop and need to be forgiven and have not lived up to all all of the um, things I, I hope to when I was ordained bishop. 
that, that there are times in which um, I have failed uh, through um, omission, we'd say, uh, or failed to, to be able to do something. So it is an important time to, to, to come free, so to speak, to get that in the open and then rededicate. Well, we move on to Wednesday. Now, we are getting into terms that are very difficult um, for some people, me included. And I've been an Episcopalian my whole life. And matins and lots and tenebrae, we hear things, candles in the shape of a triangle, 15 candles, a noise. The tenebrae service, what is that? What is the purpose of tenebrae? Uh, and and we have um, things that happen there that no other service in the Episcopal Church would you have things, the matins and the lauds and the candles. So what's going on? Why are we doing that? Well, in actual fact, I don't think Tenebrae is celebrated in that many places in the Episcopal Church. Really? Really. Um, in fact, <laughs> in the Diocese of Utah, um, at the cathedral, Tenebrae was not done at all until 20, um, and it might have been done many years ago, hmm. but in my experience in Utah, it really wasn't done and was only begun probably in like 2012 or really? 2013. And that was with um, uh, Robin James, mm -hmm. uh, who, who started that tenebrae service with the people telling the story and with each successive one, the extinguishing the candle and moving into darkness. And then the loud noise is, is, is done. Um, in my experience, actually, it just hasn't been that an important of a service. For us in the Episcopal Church, it's more of the Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, Holy Saturday, and Easter Sunday as being the principal services of Holy Week. So I th I don't know how many congregations in our diocese are actually doing tenebrae, uh, which, is, which is the telling of that story, and it's very dramatic. Mm -hmm. um, it's communion is not celebrated. It really is the Tanya story and then moving from light into darkness um, as the story is told. Uh, and the reason why perhaps it's not so much celebrated is because it does go through fundamentally the same narrative that was done on Palm Sunday and will be repeated again on Good Friday. So again, uh, while it is a service of the Western tradition, in my experience, it really hasn't been one which has been done. And matins and lots and those things are the services of the hours. And again, it's not something, again, which you'll find many Episcopal congregations really doing. That comes for us from the monastic tradition, right. um, but not so much in the um, Episcopal Church, unless you really, well, in the monasteries of the Episcopal Church, you'd find those practice, but not so much in the... Um, the standard sort of church, although morning prayer might take the place of matins. In the morning. Yeah, it's kind of morning and evening prayer, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, uh, lots of matins. Yeah. So those are the holy hours of the services. Uh -huh. So again, uh, it's not really uh, something which I think, uh, other than morning prayer being done and evening prayer, uh, but that whole cycle of prayers, the holy hours of, of the day, um, is not something which is routinely in my experience, anyway, really practiced mm -hmm. all that often, unless you're dealing with uh, a monastery or a very um, Anglo-Catholic congregation, which might do that, but they won't necessarily get up very early in the morning, um, really, really extremely early in the morning to, to that first service. 
Um, but I've seen, I've practiced that myself when I stayed at a monastery. Uh, so again, it's not something that I would say your average Episcopalian wouldn't have much experience of doing all the hours of the of the day sort of circle. You've talked about Monday Thursday, and um, Monday Thursday is a service that is done virtually in every Episcopal church and certainly um, in every diocese. Um, it has the foot washing and the um, stripping of the altar two very important parts of it and perhaps something that if you're a visitor or you're a newcomer or even if you've been around the church for a long time you wonder why the foot washing and why the stripping of the altar in a very dramatic portion at the uh, end of the service the monday thursday service <clears throat> is is the beginning of what we call the triduum triduum however you would want to pronounce it t-r-i-d-u-u-m Basically, three days is what it means. Now, you might call it Holy Holy Triduum um, or, or give it another name like that. But the Triduum really is one long service. So let's just talk about that for just a moment. Uh, if you go to the Monday Thursday service, there's no dismissal, which would be the end of the service. People leave in silence after the stripping altar. We'll get back to that. And then into the Good Friday service. And again, there's no ending statement on there. People people leave in silence, but there's no official dismissal. And then you have the Holy Saturday service, the great vigil of Easter, in which we move from darkness into light. So the people enter in the dark, and then the lights come on. And traditionally, that was done in the wee hours of the morning. So you enter the church in the darkness, and then when the service completed, sunrise was there. Uh, and then at that, with the celebration of the resurrection, then you had a dismissal. So you would have these three services, um, that, that three days, which actually might, some people would say, it actually concludes with evening prayer on Easter Sunday itself. So um, that's an, an important thing to understand, that it really is, an, liturgically speaking, one long service. Now, Getting back to the question of the foot washing, Jesus demonstrated to his disciples uh, that he was their friend and not their master, uh, for one. And then what he did was he washed the feet of his disciples as an example of his service to them. Uh, Peter, Peter objects because Peter uh, says to Jesus that, that he will never have Jesus, his master, wash his feet because that is below his master. And Jesus is demonstrating what it means for him to give his life um, to his disciples to serve them and demonstrates what leadership is about, which is service, um, but not, not lording over them, so to speak. So he, he does that as a demonstration to them of what they should then do for one another, which is to serve one another because, again, uh, Monday Thursday is when Jesus gives the new commandment that they should love one another. And this is a demonstration. And in this act of washing, he is demonstrating his, in the Last Supper, he's demonstrating his giving of himself to them. It frames the whole thing of what will happen with the crucifixion, frankly. So the, the service proceeds in this way with the washing of the feet as Jesus does this. And again, when Jesus says to Peter, I think this is an important point, when Jesus says to Peter, if you don't allow me to do this for you, you will have no part of me, you see. And so Peter then goes overboard and says, not my feet, wash my everything else as well. Um, 
and what what Jesus is saying when he when he tells Peter that if he doesn't allow this to happen, then he will have no part of him, because if Peter cannot accept Jesus washing his his feet and being a servant to him, how in the world can he accept God becoming human? Because if you can't accept Jesus washing the feet, uh, which is frankly um, not m compared to God becoming human, um, then then Jesus would say, you have no part of me because you can't understand that that right there. So some places we call this the great condescension, that Jesus condescends, comes down, and does this. Um, and so it's, it, it is an important moment in the service, and so we are instructed then to, to do the same for each other. So the, the, the priests of the church then wash the feet of the people of the congregation, of those who desire it. At the end of the service, we have the stripping of the altar, because what happens there, uh, and this, this we see um, in the Gospels, and I think the most profound reference of this is in the Gospel according to John, where after the Last Supper, um, Jesus um, turns to Judas and says, go and do what you're going to do. And Judas runs out, and the statement that is made at that moment in the Gospel according to John is, it, and it was night, which is to say the day is done when people work, but now it is night. And so at the end of the service, we strip the altar uh, and empty it to say that now we've entered night, and true night, spiritual night, when the presence is taken away from us. So we strip the altar as a sign of that, the presence being taken away. The tabernacle, the ombre, the, um, the sanctified elements are removed from there, and the candle is extinguished. And that that shows the movement into what John, Gospel John would say, it is night. And so that is why that is all done. And, and then the people uh, many times will take turns and staying in the church throughout the night in order that there is someone praying there in order to answer Jesus' question, could you not stay awake with me one hour? Um, and as we know, um, the disciples could not, but people take turns doing this in order to answer the question, yes, we can stay awake with you at least one hour. Many Episcopalians who participate in Monday Thursday walk away saying it's one of the most meaningful services they've ever been to. Um, it's it's because it's different, of, of, and it leaves with you really having personal reflection. So it, it probably is a, it's a very good way to go into Good Friday then, isn't it? To, you, you know what's going to happen, but it's, um, it's there, and now we move into Good Friday. Um, good Friday traditionally is done at noon. Good Friday um, often has a liturgy of Good Friday, and um, some places, such as in Utah, uh, various churches will also carry a cross and do stations of the cross. Um, the Good Friday service at noon, first of all, is that coincidental or um, the fact that many traditionally do a liturgy at noon? If you read the story, the Passion story, the narrative, the crucifixion, it takes place at noon. And that's when the eclipse happens or the, the sky gets darkened at the brightest time of day. So the traditional time for a Good Friday service is noon, of course. <clears throat> now, people often ask the question, why do we even call it good? 
What, what, what is so good about it? And I think that is confusing uh, to many people. Why in the world would we say um, this is something good? And the answer, the simple answer to that is it's not good Friday in the sense of good like this tastes good or something like that. Um, rather, it's God Friday because our word good really is, is um, from God. So, for instance, when we say goodbye to a person, that is really a contraction, you could say, of God be with ye. So we say goodbye, uh, which was the farewell. God be with ye, and that became goodbye. So, and we also say God is good. Um, in fact, um, people say no one is good but God. So God is good, so hence Good Friday really is God Friday. And that's why uh, we term it that. So it is the time in which, of course, as as Jesus under, uh, underwent his um, crucifixion and that ultimate suffering and giving of himself, then we in the church then um, celebrate or tell, once again, the story of the Passion, traditionally from the Gospel according to John uh, on Good Friday. And then people receive the communion from the sacrament that has been taken away, reserve sacrament, uh, without any words of consecration. Um, and once again, the service ends in, in silence as the people stay to reflect or leave the church in silence. Uh, and it is a very important service and not the culmination of Holy Week, certainly, but a time of reflection to share within the the suffering of Jesus. And the people then also, uh, in the reading of the Passion, just as they did on Palm Sunday, take parts. Um, and the congregation gathered will take the part of the crowd that shouts out, crucify him, we have no other king but Caesar. Um, so the congregation participates in that story because in, in the story, um, you're either, um, but when we, when we tell the story, the people of the congregation, everybody, frankly, um, is not Jesus. And if we're not Jesus in that story, then we're part of the crowd that shouts out, crucify him. So we, we take our place as part of the crowd um, that, that is frightened and afraid or, or sees this person as the one to heap all the blame upon, to scapegoat this person. And so the crowd participates in that, um, that shouting out of, of, of crucify him as we then say he's the one that um, carries all the fault. He's the one that we blame for everything. He's the one that's caused a problem. He's the one we need to get rid of, which is a cycle, of course, which we continue to this very day uh, when we in society pick upon one group of people to blame for all the troubles in the society, and we try to get rid of them. We, we objectify them and make them into less than human. We see this happen all the time. And indeed, in the time in which we find ourselves living, I am afraid that process of scapegoating others is, a, is quite alive and well and is, and is used politically um, to gain votes from people, to make them afraid. And if we can only get rid of these people, our lives will be made so much better. And as I said that at the very beginning, that in itself is a form of slavery. Where we see things from a human point of view and not God's point of view, where all people are God's beloved children. In Good Friday, um, you bring up a point here that maybe I just happen to think of is that we we leave Good Friday talking about an event that happened over 2,000 years ago. 
and you have just brought it up to it's something that's current. Um, I've never thought about that because as I leave Good Friday, I always think of if only I'd been there or something like that. I mean, and, and we sing, were you there when they crucified my Lord? And, and, but you're saying that Good Friday is really a service that's appropriate for today in, in looking at your life in today's world, not a history lesson. It, it, yes, and what's so important, I think, for me personally, the story of the crucifixion of Jesus is, is one from the point of view of we'd say theologically or spiritually what's going on there, and one would one would hope that one would look at what's hap- what happened there with Jesus, and turn away from that and say no more. We're not going to do this anymore, uh, because the crucifixion was so brutal, so terribly violent, uh, and showed to the people the depths to which we as human beings can descend, that we would do something like this. And so one of the effects of the crucifixion from a point of view of salvation um, would be to look at that and say, no more. We can't do this anymore. And in that moment of turning away from that type of violence, then we become someone new. So one could see salvation being um, communicated to the people through the crucifixion by, by looking at that and turning away from evil. That's one, that's one possible understanding and one that, that is given. And of course, also we could say that um, theologically, Jesus took upon himself all of the, the hate and sin of the world and carried, carried them with him and suffered for that. That, that is another view of the crucifixion and salvation being, being given um, for, for us through the suffering of Jesus. So when we look at that story, however, and what took place, the hope for result of that would be people, in my mind, um, certainly would be people look at this and say, we can't continue doing this. This is just wrong. Uh, and the hope would be that one person suffers so we don't have to repeat the pattern over and over again. But unfortunately, the truth of the matter is we do repeat the pattern over and over again where we cast one person or one group of people to be the reason why all the bad is happening in the world or in the country or the community or in the family. And then we heap all the blame on that person and we, um, well, sometimes we drive them out of the family. Sometimes we drive them out of the community. Um, Sometimes we lock them into prison and take away their child from them. Sometimes we we deny them aid. Sometimes we use them to manipulate people to get a vote. Um, whatever it might be, we do this over and over again. And a Christian person, I think, would look upon that and say, we don't need to keep doing this. Jesus already showed us this, the evil of this. We should turn away from this. So it has a very profound story to tell, not just for the church, um, but also for the people living today. A very, very profound lesson to be learned. Uh, And the hope for uh, result would be that we would turn away from evil and embrace the good and choose to not live that way anymore. Because it really is a choice that we make. And we need to come um, into awareness of what is actually happening.
you know, in that moment. Right. So that is um, really why I think it, it is one of the one of the many reasons why I believe that that Good Friday service and that telling of the passion is so important. And, and for us then to be um, cognizant of the way in which this still works in, in the world today. This is the Utah Podcopalians broadcast of the Diocese of Utah discussing some of the uh, reason that we have so many services and um, services that don't really appear in other parts of our yearly uh, service calendar and our seasons. Uh, we move into probably one of my favorite services of all, and that is uh, Holy Saturday, the Liturgy of Holy Saturday and the Easter Vigil. Um, let's let's talk about the Easter Vigil. It's a fascinating service. It's a service of um, a number of baptisms. It's a service of joy, and it ends um, really an uplifting feeling. It's one of the favorites. Easter Vigil, and it's not really the Easter festive Eucharist. It's not really any other part. It's its own service. And often it's overlooked because we're coming into Easter. Yes, well, it, it is. In fact, um, if one's not part of a, a tradition uh, what, what that I would call a liturgical tradition, which would be uh, the Episcopal Church most certainly, the Roman Catholic Church, the Greek Orthodox Church, um, Russian Orthodox Church, and, and other liturgical traditions, uh, then one might miss this whole um, this whole movement, and <clears throat> so for for those of us who are in in that tradition that holds these services to be important, what the holy uh, or the great vigil of Easter does, it's in many ways it's that culmination of the the, the great three days, which will flow in, of course, to Sunday because we begin in the evening on on Thursday, so we'd flow into Sunday. the The great vigil is a time in which we begin in darkness. And we light the new fire. You recall that I said that on Monday, Thursday, the candles extinguished, and which the candle and the flame signify the presence of Christ, and that's taken away. Uh, and so we light the new fire uh, in the courtyard, or and then what we do is we light candles from that new fire, which ultimately will be the uh, flame that will be used to light the uh, new candle. So that whole movement from darkness to light that takes place there is very important. So the service is that starts in darkness, and uh, the Sanctus is sung. Um, I won't go into that because we're running long. Yeah. Um, you can look that one up on Wikipedia. And once again, the Utah Podcopalians podcast in the Diocese of Utah, talking about Holy Week, uh, and it's a fascinating part of our church um, calendar more than fascinating it is we are an easter people and it does lead to exactly who we are and who we are in this podcast is the right reverend scott b hayashi the bishop of the diocese of utah and i'm craig worth of the diocese and we're in the easter vigil and the service is about to end we've had baptisms we've had new christians We've had a feeling that the church has been renewed, certainly from what had happened at Monday Thursday when the church was, um, the altar was stripped and just went into darkness, and now we're, we're into light. So we end the Easter vigil how? How is the, the feeling, the emotion, and what exactly 
happens. Well, let me let me go back actually, because there's an a lot to say. I know this this one's going long, and I actually made the wrong statement. The the serves not the Sanctus is sung. That's sung every Sunday. Right. The Exalted is sung, right. which is done to begin. So look up Exalted. I work Got a lot to look up yeah, here. Look up Exalted. <laughs> Otherwise, this 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 podcast is going to go way 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 overtime, like one of my sermons. But, <laughs> but and Easter vigil songs. Yeah. Yes. How many is, times can you yeah. sing? Morning has broken. Yeah. <laughs> so what what happened? happens, though, is the service, as, as I said, begins in the darkness. The new fire is lit. The people come into the congregation carrying the, the new flame, um, which, as I said, will go to light the sanctuary lamp. The exalted is sung. And then what happens is the salvation history is read, starting from um, the, the story of how God has worked throughout history, leading on up through to uh, the story of the Gospels. So what we have there, of course, begins with a reading from Genesis and then works all the way up to tell the story of God's movement in the world. Um, so there are quite a number of readings. Now, Holy Saturday or the Great Vigil or the Great Vigil of Easter is also a traditional time where baptisms take place. That people who have been in the catechumenate, um, adult persons and, and young ones as persons as well, uh, will be baptized on Holy Saturday, the great vigil of Easter, as we celebrate that. Now, here is another piece which, golly, you know, there's, there's so much, there's, there's so much here which people in the church don't don't really understand. The tradition uh, for baptism and doing them on the great vigil, Holy Vigil, or the great vigil of Easter, I should say. Now, what's happening there, you see, is in baptism, the person the, the person is baptized goes under the water of baptism and, rise, and rises up as a new person. And, and what we say, you know, what, what we say, you know, in that is really the person is resurrected, so to speak. Um, and so one of the practices of the early church was that when the person was baptized, there in front of the, the bishop was the risen Christ himself, you see. Um, if you look at the service, you'll see the, the, the pieces of that which really show this. Um, and, and so since the bishop worships the risen Christ himself, then the bishop would go down and kiss the feet of those who had been baptized. And that was practiced, um, you know, in, in the very early church because there in front of the bishop was the resurrected Jesus himself. So the service proceeds forward, and then um, at a certain point when the story reaches that culmination, then the lights come on, uh, the candles at the altar are lit to signify that the period of, of time is over, Jesus has been raised from the dead, and so the darkness is dispelled and the light is there. So it, it, is, a, it is a wonderful uh, time of celebration. People in the congregation will ring bells, shout acclamations of joy. You know, as we pronounce that, Christ is risen, the Lord is risen indeed, hallelujah. So it, it is that, that moment of great celebration after the penitential season of Lent, after the darkness of Holy Week, then we rise into the light. Uh, so it is a wonderful celebration. And then, of course, that service, um, there is an actual dismissal. But then the great celebration of Easter will take place on Easter Sunday morning when most people then will be the ones who come to celebrate Easter. You almost... Um miss something if you're not at the vigil though i mean i know easter sunday is don't get me wrong is an amazingly wonderful service but it's that vigil that really is easter isn't it well it's the it's it's the movement the uh, that we have from monday thursday good friday to holy saturday and then the great vigil i think what happens though in, in our 
uh, time, especially for people who are not part of that sort of liturgical tradition where they travel through a season like Lent and then go into Holy Week and then at Easter, is I think some of the meaning of Easter is lost because the whole meaning of it for the movement of Jesus' journey to Jerusalem and then the whole narrative of, of the passion going with Jesus as he makes his way to the cross and, and, and into the tomb and then the resurrection. For those in the liturgical traditions, we've seen the entire movement of that. And for people who are not a part of that tradition, I've often asked the question, does it have the same gravitas. I, I'm sure it's still a very joyful um, Sunday, you know, for people to come, and many people go to Easter that go to church at no other time of the year except perhaps Christmas. But I think that in, in many ways they don't get the whole story, mm-hmm. and so there's something missing. And so the resurrection of Jesus is seen um, as something that happened all those years ago, but really it doesn't have the same valence, because I think what n- we need to to step into and, and understand is again how we how are we defined as people easter is the moment in which we celebrate the resurrection and then we become defined you see our identity is defined by the resurrection it's defined by being by jesus being raised and new life being made possible for us and so we become people of the resurrection and that is the definition of who we are and we are called upon to live our lives as people of the resurrection the resurrection is not just something which took place all those years ago with jesus which is wonderful and magnificent and powerful but we are called to look at our own lives and say, where in my life do I need resurrection? What is something inside of me which has been is dead and locked away in, in the tomb where no light comes that needs to have life and light brought in? What relationship of mine, perhaps, with another human being has been injured or hurt? And where does that need to be brought back to life? So resurrection becomes a present reality, which forms my sense of being a person. And each year, as we go through this, I continually ask the question, where in my life do I need resurrection? Because resurrection is something that is meant to be experienced now and not just something we celebrate of an event that took place all those years ago. It's been a fascinating journey through the week, and I deeply appreciate you being with us, Bishop. Bishop Scott B. Hayashi of the Diocese of Utah. I'm Craig Worth of the Diocese, and you've been listening to the Utah Epochopalians, a podcast of the Diocese of Utah.